Welcome to another episode of Stroke.fm, and we are here with my two amazing colleagues. Hello, thank you for having us here. I'm uh, Tess Fitzpatrick, I'm a Stroke Fellow. And I'm Ryan Muir, one of the Stroke Residents here at the University of Toronto. And I'm Human Kostrovani, one of the Stroke Doctors at the University of Toronto. Welcome guys. Thank you for having us again. So today we're gonna talk about what happens in the mechanics of a coach stroke. It turns out that a lot of stuff is actually happening. Uh, a, a lot of things are going through our minds and it all has to happen under 30 minutes if you're giving TPA. Ideally under 15. In some record centers, even eight minutes. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about it. So, you know, before we talk about this, I mean, everybody's hospital and, you know, so-called shop does things differently. Um, but uh, these are some of the overall principles we thought to talk about, right? So, uh, Ryan, imagine you are asleep, sound asleep in your room and, you know, you're, you, you might even be dreaming something nice. And suddenly that pager goes off. Oh, beep, yeah. beep, beep, beep. Dreaming about a code stroke, of course, right? That's right. You're preparing in That's your right. sleep yep. about the code stroke. Going over it in my mind yeah, over and over again. Different syndromes, <laughs> like if it could be an MCA, a basilar, you're thinking about all of these things. Okay. So what happens when that call comes in? Totally. Great question. First questions I'm asking myself and I'm asking the person on the other end is, is this person stable or not stable? I need to know how quickly I need to get down there, who I need to call, if this is already a person who needs ICU level of care, for instance. And the eMERGE doc is going to be invaluable in helping me with this. And if they have any of that personal health information, I think that's, uh, that's great to get in the moment too. But sometimes we don't have a lot of information. And so working with ambiguity is fun. Um, and it's something I, I like. Yeah, we recently had a code at 7.30. And we're always like, this is going to be either the real thing or it's going to be not a stroke. So sometimes like you even have a feeling because of the time of the day or the scenario. But sometimes it's quite surprising. You go down and you do, as you said, with a very sick patient. Yep. Tess, what about you? What do you think? What are your elevator thoughts when you're coming down with that code stroke? Um, sometimes I'm thinking, is it, am I awake? Is it a stream? No, <laughs> but no, forget about it. Once I've established that it's a Do I have time to get a coffee? <laughs> that's right. It's an actual page. I am thinking about it. Well, I think Ryan mentioned all of the key things that whether the patient is stable or not, that's the number one thing going through my mind. And um, if you have any information, then you can already start to formulate a differential diagnosis in your mind. If you have any story about the patient's symptoms, laterality, you can start to prep and think about the way you're going to structure your exam. And uh, as soon as you get down to eMERGE, uh, if the patient hasn't arrived yet, you can make sure the correct team has been mobilized, the porters here, getting everything ready. I think that's part of it as well. That's right. And I think, you know, the culture of the place really matters because a lot of this can can only happen with good teamwork. So we'll be coming back to that. The theme of culture, how do you engage all of the different layers of people that are involved in, in the in the code stroke? Um so that's a great thought. On the so, yeah, go for it. I just thought of something. On the note of PHI, I don't know, some centers may have What's PHI? Personal health information. Right. My apologies. Uh, for all the TLAs, the three letter acronyms. Pre-registration, uh, registering patients before they arrive. Uh, it'd be great if that was a standard thing. We'd have access to PHI ahead of time. Yeah. Do you know if that happens everywhere or? I think in, a lot of experience? centers have a hard time with uh, with that because of patient confidentiality and getting yeah, EMS fair. to dispatch the names of patients over their radio. Yeah, yeah. talking about our mm. um, stroke in twenty thirty episode. That's one of the things, right? If we knew in advance a lot of the personal health information, that patient could be registered and on their way to scan with uh, 
already all their demographics in there and armband ready to go and all that stuff. Totally. But, but right now, yeah, that's a that's a barrier. I mean, one of the things you're talking about is we've got to get them to the scanner directly from EMS and and uh, maybe go to the resuscitation room if they're sick or unstable. But to do that, you need to have that personal health information. So that's something that really speeds up codes. So moving forward, imagine now we are in the resuscitation bay and you are down and and you're trying to sort of figure out what to do. What what are the first things that goes through your mind? Tess, why don't you start us off? All right. So you pre- prepared yourself in the elevator already um, to consider is the patient stable or not? So that I think is the first thing you need to look at. So as soon as they roll in, you're looking at their most recent vital signs and having a general uh, look at the patient and getting a sense, do they look sick or not? Are they heading towards intubation? Do I need to call for backup or not? Um, And then I think the key is, as you mentioned, teamwork. So the most uh, um, smoothly run codes, I think, have two MDs. uh, So splitting up the team into MD1 and MD2. So that's kind of what we like to do here, where the first MD is responsible um, for being the examiner and being the code leader. Uh, and the second MD is getting the background history, the collateral, talking to EMS, uh, any family that's present, and uh, starting to find out about potential contraindications to treatment, um, et cetera. Yeah, it's a miracle how many times the collateral information changes, even through the code. Absolutely. The last seen well time goes from, you know, one hour before to three hours to suddenly it was a wake-up stroke. And- exactly. Yeah. yeah, having someone dedicated to that is a good point. Yeah. You know, I had this really interesting case that was advertised as a wake-up stroke and clarifying with the person's wife, he woke up to walk his dog at 5 a.m., totally normal, but then apparently woke up at 7 with deficit. So we had a brand new time of onset. That's right. So and collateral dis- information is invaluable. That's right. And disclosure, we always change the contents and details of the cases didn't discuss in codestroke.fm. So back to talking about what happens. Yeah, so EMS is really important, obviously. So now you're down there, EMS is there, they're usually taking the patient off. And some of the things there is, you know, Sometimes the patient's in, a, you know, in, their, in their jacket, that has to obviously come off. But if they're in a sweater and their arm is exposed, I think you can go ahead and start getting the history and getting the exam. There's no need to add extra stuff at that point. So if the patient looks good, there's no um, airway issues. As, as Tess said, they haven't called, you know, called the eMERGE doctor. You can start examining the patient. So what do we do with that exam? Like NIH could be very daunting. What does it stand for, NIH? National Institute of Health Stroke Scale. That's right. Excellent. Kind of scary. 42 points. It is. From, There's 42. I think so. I'm not sure. I always have to check. Have you ever had a patient with an NIH of 42? There is an app for that. Yeah. Thank goodness for that app. So yeah, so you're examining the patient. And um, and you, as you said, there's another another doctor kind of... So that person's running the code, right? The team leader. Yeah. So that would be like MD1. That's how we do it at our shop. MD1 yeah. runs the code. MD2 gets collateral information, goes to the chart, talks to the EMS. and at that point, we look at what parameters. So um, once you've had the vitals done, um, you want to look at certain things like um, glucose and other hard contraindications to TPA. So essentially, you got the vital signs. And the reason they're called vital signs, I was told in clerkship, is because they are vital. That's uh, actually true, right? Yeah, yeah. Just like the glucose. Just like the glucose. The glucose is the sixth of vital sign. The Ex- sweetest vital sign. <laughs> the sweetest vital sign. I love that. That's really funny. So, and sometimes, you know, EMS has a good sense of what's going on, and sometimes they don't. You know, frankly, sometimes what is thought to be a code stroke is a code sepsis, and that gets us to that initial thought process during that, you know, examination of thinking about the mimics. Absolutely. Mimics of stroke. Diabetic ketoacidosis, smell their breath. 
Is it cathartic? Is it sweet? Certainly, I've seen cases like that too. Brian, you must be examining patients extremely closely <laughs> and using established Oslerian methods. <laughs> But in more modern-day medicine. No, I just have a very long nose, so. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, so what are, what are some of these mimics? So seizure is a common one, or post-ictal state. Um, so sometimes uh, Todd's uh, paralysis can seem for sure like a stroke, and uh, there might not be a history of um, generalized tonic-clonic seizure or other focal motor seizure activity if the patient uh, was found down on the ground um, and was last seen perhaps hours earlier. Absolutely. Then there's Bell's phenomenon and uh, facial paresis too, that is very important to de delineate during code stroke, upper motor neuron versus lower motor neuron pattern. That's right. We always have time to show them the picture and say, is this how you looked before? And you have a former driver's license? No, just kidding. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. For facial droop, definitely just quickly looking at that is important. What else? So there's uh, patients who have had prior strokes who can represent um, with a worsening of pre-existing stroke symptoms in the context of a physiological stressor such as sepsis or just a UTI or any other, uh, any other intercurrent illness. So sometimes these old deficits can re-emerge and, uh, and a new code stroke is called. And then you can have patients too with brain tumors as well who hemorrhage or have, like you said, test seizures. Mm -hmm. They can often present as code mm -hmm. strokes too. Uh, yeah, migraine, and what else did we talk, not talk about? I guess MI, right? The other one's MI, aortic dissection. Once in a while, we'll get an aortic dissection with um, you know, focal neurologic deficit. Yeah, and sometimes MS too, multiple sclerosis, demyelinating illness. Although the classic teaching, it's gradual. It can be pretty quick too. And yeah. uh, there, there can be some mimics like that. I was just going to say, I think a common area where we do see a lot of mimics too is uh, with posterior circulation symptoms. Uh, the NIHSS doesn't really cover as well for the posterior circulation symptoms. And um, sometimes um, patients with dizziness uh, can be called a stroke. And of course, there's many other causes of dizziness. Um, and uh, so we see that all the time as well. That's right. Sometimes I like to say to folks that, you know, the NIH has to make sense. Like, you can't have an ECG with ST elevation in lead one and lead six. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, it can happen in some weird things, like I'm sure it are various, you know, myopericarditis syndromes or weird coronary dissections or weird things like that. But in general, it has to fit a vascular territory. And in general, the NIH has to sort of make sense with some form of stroke syndrome. When it doesn't, mimics are one possibility. Uh, of course, our friend, the thalamus can cause problems, of course, always weird stuff. And then there are other uh, types of, uh, I mean, the other one is multi-territory. Some patients come in with two different territories of stroke. Or, or sometimes they present with one sy syndrome, like an MCA, and then later we find they've had actually a sure. cerebellar hit too. So those are all the possibilities. Um, so let's talk about the other, yeah. Uh, I think the key though is they could be presenting with a stroke mimic, but when we first get down there and it could be a stroke, we assume it's a stroke uh, and kind of treat as quickly as we can until uh, we can prove otherwise because yeah. time is key. Absolutely. That's another good one. So what if it's a young person and suddenly they get better and, and you know, sometimes, you know, we think about other kind of functional ideologies. What if they get better? Would you, would you proceed with a code stroke? Would you continue to image them? Absolutely, I think. You got to give them benefit of the doubt. And in that moment, you know, they, they did experience something real, whether it's because of conversion or or not, we, have, we need to do imaging to actually say that it's conversion. That's right. And yeah. you know, sometimes we have had, and, you, and uh, folks who are listening to this podcast will, will see this, you can have a low uh, NIH, but have an M1 proximal occlusion. And sometimes within the, in the setting of good collaterals, a patient can fluctuate. 
And I have been myself shocked several times where, you know, you, you think that it's not a, even a stroke sometimes uh, or, or in a weird population, like a very young person in an odd situation. And then, boom, it's a real stroke. And, mm-hmm. and you know, the imaging really shows us that it, it's actually real. So, as you said, uh, even if you don't think it's a stroke at some point during the code or as you're getting to the CT, don't abort. Continue getting the imaging. Uh, you know, if, if you were not to pick it up, it would be potentially a big problem so probably fair to say to do that okay so uh tpa, TPA. what about tpa standard treatment when is it good for up to what time four and a half hours is what the literature says but with perfusion imaging we're pushing this maybe a little bit further um so yeah but hard rule four and a half hours absolutely but there are some out of window tpas that we're doing more and more of now yeah we'll talk about that in probably a future episode but that study where it showed tpa in late windows they actually had a door to needle time of about two hours which could be complicated by the fact that they have to do probably a lot of thinking and advanced imaging. But it's important to point out that those initial TPA trials not only had stroke mimics and TIAs in them, which is why a certain proportion improved on their own, but also uh, all they went by was a plain CT and an NIH or an exam that was consistent with a stroke. So that's, that's a good point. So TPA under four and a half hours of standard treatment. And uh, for everybody? Not for everyone. TPA for all. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about relative and hard contraindications to TPA because I think we should be thinking about these things mm-hmm. as part of our initial code stroke assessment uh, so that we can be ready to treat for the patients who are eligible once we know that their scan is favorable. So let's talk about some contraindications. Absolutely. So anyone who's on uh, Warfarin or a DOAC or recently has taken these uh, with an INR more than 1.7, certainly that's an absolute contraindication. And this is not something that we would pursue reversing and then giving TPA. It's absolutely a hard contraindication. Yeah, so you wouldn't give like idrisuzumab to a, the bigger trans patient and then TPA them. Although it's been done. That's right. It wow. has been done. That's right. What about warfarin? To be is, continued. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, in theory, that would make sense because it's an antibody, right? You're not actually increasing. It's not like when yeah, you're reversing right. warfarin, you might make someone more hypercoagulable and worsen their clotting. That's you're true. actually just preventing the drug from functioning anymore and then the tpa is in theory safer right so i think that makes more sense mm. than reversing something like warfarin with uh pcc and vitamin k that's right yeah and and warfarin uh, just to clarify hard clarification like hard no or what does it matter inr because, yeah INR. yeah so essentially if it's more than 1.7 you uh you can't tpa uh what if it's 1.71 i'll probably tpa that but uh but anyway, more than 1.7, you can't. And that's why you need an INR with someone with warfarin. But the point is that if, if, if um, INR is less than 1.7, um, you could uh, TPA the patient, even though they're on warfarin. That's an important point. Absolutely. So I think there's very few hard contraindications to, to TPA nowadays. Um, five years ago, 10 years ago, there were a lot more uh, contraindications and people were a bit more scared of TPA. But now really being on a DOAC or having an INR that's too high, um, as well as active bleeding uh, are kind of the main hard contraindications. Mm-hmm. So bleeding, any, you know, any major systemic bleeding, but also, of course, intracranial hemorrhage, which uh, you'll need the brain imaging for. Um, and then there's all these kind of more relative contraindications um, that yeah. we can talk about as well. Recent stroke, I think this is one that uh, originally was a 
semi-hard, but now we're learning more and more that it's actually probably safe to give people with uh, recent stroke TPA. Yeah. It depends on how recent, of course. Yeah, let's say a month ago someone had a lacunar stroke and there was a tiny dot in the yeah. thalamus or, I don't know, internal capsule or something, and now they come in with an M1 occlusion and um, they're within TPA window. Go for Did it. Did you give TPA? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, what else? Um, certain, certain surgeries, uh, you know, recent surgery, if it's a major surgery, non-compressible site, we might be a bit worried to give TPA, especially if there might be an alternate treatment option like uh, EVT. But for more minor surgeries, I think people are uh, more and more open to, to giving TPA, speaking with the surgeon, touching base, making sure that uh, it's cleared from their perspective too. Yeah, especially like if it's minimally invasive. I mean, we recently had a case that, that was potentially possible, but you have to be careful. Uh, but if the bleeding is like in a major organ that's not compressible, like the airway, they have recent head and neck surgery or something, yeah, then that becomes more complicated. Uh, certainly recent cardiac surgery Absolutely. Uh, would be a definite no-no. Sometimes we have code strokes activated on folks with chest tubes and uh, they're, they're, they're quite sick. And really the consult there is, is for thrombectomy rather than TPA. Um, so then, that, that's a really a good point there. I mean, there are a lot of possibilities. When it comes to these off-label or relative contraindications, should I say, not off-label, but relative contraindications, discussion with the patient, their substitute decision maker, and documenting the nuances of that discussion, the risks, benefits, alternatives, and the fact that we are doing something that is a relative contraindication, but we feel that the benefits are outweigh that and the family or SDM is okay with it or the patient, that's super important. So I think in those cases, you really can use your judgment absolutely and, yeah, yeah and make a case by case uh, and i think that brings us to a really good discussion point about cancer and malignancy it right. really does depend where's the cancer what's the type of cancer and especially nowadays with monoclonal therapies for cancers evolving the prognoses of cancers are changing and so it's no longer such that patients have a bad prognosis necessarily if they have a cancer. And we should think about offering TPA, of course, depending on bleeding risks and locations. Yeah, it depends on the cancer. The, like, for example, yeah, if someone had metastatic renal cell carcinoma or a melanoma, that usually, for example, yeah. for me would be a hard stop. Especially if it's in the brain. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or if you don't know it's in the brain, mm. but, they, but they do have metastatic melanoma or RCC, especially melanoma is the more concerning one. But they've had, for example, no recent brain imaging, then I think the discussion there... It has to be much more wholesome and complete, but with a honestly probably a much higher risk of hemorrhage. Um, so that, that that becomes kind of complicated. But what else? And let's talk a little bit about consent for TPA. What sort of things do you need to tell family if they're around? Absolutely, that's the important part too, right? If they're around, um, and we should always strive to get consent in these cases too, because there is an increased risk of bleeding with TPA, of course, um, and fatal bleeding at that. Uh, but in cases where family is not around, then in some jurisdictions, actually, um, we can treat on an emergent basis. Um, and I'm sure we've all had cases like that before, too, where, where waiver of consent really is important because it's the standard of care that we should offer. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes about some of the bleeding risks with TPA so you can judge the evidence yourself. But there, there are numbers in the, in, the, in the graph there to talk about bleeding risk and death within seven days and bleeding risk... Uh, and it, with different types of degrees of hemorrhage. And not all hemorrhage is created equal, but the bad kind, which is like a parenchymal hemorrhage with uh, something called parenchymal hemorrhage type 2, uh, which is like a definition anyway. But there are numbers there. We'll put a link in the show notes for that. That's right. But in general, I quote to families about 6% risk of intracranial hemorrhage, sometimes higher if there's certain um, situations like in the context of dementia as well, you have a higher bleeding risk. Uh, but that's kind of the number I give. And then also mentioning um, the small risk of angioedema. Um, and what else do we, 
you guys mentioned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Angioedema with usually ACE inhibitors on board sometimes yeah. mm, can precipitate angioedema. Yeah. yeah, and then the risk is something like the, the, the article we're going to put in the notes like 6.7%, but some doctors say 10%, but as, as Tess, you said, yeah, some people like... It's like, a range. Yeah, I looked into aspects. Like when the aspects is low, the risk, the, the odds mm. ratio is like five to nine times higher. So again, that that translates to probably much higher bleeding risk if someone has a an aspects of uh, you know five. Why would we do that? Well, in some cases, you have no choice, and the and, and the family would would say that you know they would want everything uh, to be done to give them the best chance of getting better, understanding the risk of fatal hemorrhage, and in those cases, there, there are instances where. On an individual basis, with consent, we will give TPA with aspects of six or five, and sometimes we are surprised. You get a good outcome, and nothing bad happens. So, but the risk of bleeding is super high. What do you guys think about pregnancy? Right. Well, TPA doesn't actually cross the placenta. Yeah. So it is uh, a drug that you should consider in pregnant patients who are having a stroke. Uh, the risk is if they do go into labor soon after and they um, have a hemorrhage, then it will be obviously more difficult to control. But um, I think if they're having a major stroke, again, you have an informed, good discussion with them uh, and you involve obstetrics early and you can give the juice. That's right. Give the juice. Push the juice. Push the juice. Juicy. Juice. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. That's right. Absolutely. See how excited Did you give the juice? three stroke neurologists get with regards to TPA. Life-saving. Very important stuff. What else? So recent myocardial infarction, again, difficult. If you don't know if there's been like a, a STEMI with, you know, myocardial wall compromise or there's been a transmural large infarct and, you know, pericardial effusion, if you don't have access to Im imminent like echocardiography, those get kind of scary as well. Because if there's been a recent MI mm. and there's a pericardial effusion you don't know about, TPA could cause some serious problems. So I think that that again takes some pause. Involving the other services is also important too. Like, involve the service that did X to the patient. So if the recent surgery involved them, that, that makes, a, makes a big difference as well. What if they're seizing? Right. I mean, it's possible for patients with stroke to present with seizure. So we shouldn't necessarily exclude people with seizure. But I think we should think twice because there are many other causes of seizure too, including other structural lesions, lesions in the brain. If they had a brain tumor, that would be contraindication TPA, for instance. But yeah, there, there are cases where we we see seizure and then we do the imaging and we see a blockage, and so we know that the seizure was due to the, you know the cortex, whatever, being starved and uh, seizes. So that, that, those are fine. Those we'll still TPA those. Exactly, but that's why I think in those cases the brain imaging is the key, and perfusion can be super helpful as well. Yeah. And your decision making process, if you're if you see sometimes even increased perfusion, that might suggest. Uh, ongoing seizure activity right so we're talking about seizures and it, like what if the person seizes what does that mean yeah as we were mentioning you know i think we can't exclude this person as a candidate for tpa certainly patients with stroke can present with seizure and we have to think about that too but a seizure does make us also think about other structural lesions nice that's a good idea that's a that's a good time to talk about the next thing which is before the TPA is given, obviously, we, we, we still haven't actually, like, we went forward a little bit, but the TPA needs to come with us to the scanner, right? Absolutely. Right? Bring it to the scanner. But before we even go to the scanner, we got to prepare the patient for that journey. So um, what's important is to make sure that they have IVs in place, so large bore IV that contrast for the CTA, um, and you want to make sure that you have a weight so not all centers uh, take the time to weigh a patient. Uh, in some centers, the weight is estimated. 
uh, here we actually get a, a weight on the bed uh, and that's done so that we can start filling out our TPA order sets uh, as soon as we can. Yeah, and definitely be sure to take a look at the vitals again. Um, are they more hypertensive? Do you need to bring labetalol with you? And then also the respiratory status. You don't want to bring an unstable patient to the scanner. Um, do they need to be intubated or whatever beforehand? Uh, certainly something to pay attention to. Exactly. And so uh, while all this is happening, the nurses are putting in IVs. Uh, one person's getting the history. The other person is, is doing their uh, NIHSS and trying to get as much of the exam done as possible. I think the key is um, that if the scanner is ready, everything else is ready to go. We don't really delay the scanner to complete the full NIHSS. Sometimes you just get at least a rough estimate. You can see that if they're densely plegic on one side and aphasic, get a rough idea of how disabled their stroke is. So while one person is getting the history and nurses are putting in IVs, uh, the other physician is uh, doing their quick examination. I think the key is you don't need to do the whole NIHSS if you don't have time. Don't delay the scanner uh, to make sure you do your sensory extinction on every single patient, but at least do a rough exam in order to see how disabling um, their stroke is. Are they plegic, aphasic? Get a kind of rough uh, estimate. Yeah, in our place as well, before we go to the scanner, uh, actually before the patient comes, sometimes we do, if we have the personal health information and we're ready to uh, engage in the code stroke, we do what's called a pre-brief. So we talk about the role designation of who's doing what, the relevant history, uh, and then do we need a way to, you know, for example, if we know the patient is already on a, on a blood thinner somehow because we have personal health information, um, we're not even going to do a wait. Why, why would we do one when we know Absolutely. that we're not, they're already not a TPA candidate? Or we know that they're presenting out of window, but they have a syndrome, like a right, MC, like a, excuse me, like a right MCA syndrome, and they're really coming to be considered really for EVT. Uh, it's still a code stroke, but, you know, we're not going to wait. We're not going to add extra sort of stuff to the code stroke. So yeah, names, roles, designations, history, and expedited flow. And right before we go, what do we do there? So at our center, we have a checklist uh, prior to departing the scene, prior to going to the scanner. So we quickly run through it. Uh, are we satisfied with the airway? Do we have IV access? Has blood work been ordered and sent? Has the CT been ordered in the computer? Uh, and is the CT ready? Which CT is ready? Uh, is there a identification band on the patient? Do we have the belongings with the patient? And lastly, let's bring uh, the medications that we need to, with us, like antihypertensives, TPA, Ativan, whatever else needs to come along to the scanner for safety purposes and uh, to help facilitate giving TPA as quickly as possible. Before entering the loop, make sure you remove your hoops. And by hoops, we mean jewelry. And prior to this CT venture please remove your dentures. That's right. And we always say to keep all hands and arms inside the vehicle at all times before landing and departure. <laughs> but, but seriously, these little things, if you can yeah. identify them and do them before you get to the CT scanner, uh, it can save you time. And bottom line, time is brain, right? We want to move as quickly as possible so we don't kill more neurons. That's right. I just got a news update on my phone. It says that every minute between 35,000 and 27 million neurons die per minute. What a huge range. Yeah, why? Collaterals. Collaterals. <laughs> and function of collaterals. There's so much to do in stroke. And neuroprotection. Neuroprotection. Excellent. So, yeah, as you said, when we go to the scanner, it's nice to bring that TPA, labetalol. Sometimes we like to bring Maxaran, Ativan, any other stuff. There's some role for bundles of meds, but that will very much depend on your own shop. Sometimes pharmacists think that uh, that is not useful for the particular location but some places yeah you might have a bundle of meds that are already 
much like a, a pack you could just pick up and go to a code. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. And then in the scanner, what about that? Like, do we need all the fancy imaging? Do we need rapid and, uh, you know, perfusion and all of these different things? Or, or can we just make decisions for TPA early? Or yeah, all you need is a plain CT to make a TPA decision, really, ruling out blood. Yeah. Uh, that's really all you need. And you can get an aspect score. Thank you, Calgary. What's an aspects? An aspect score is a way we look for the degree of damage in, in an acute stroke. And it's a 10-point scale um, innovated by our colleagues in Calgary. Yeah, we should, we'll probably put in the show notes that there's a nice website at the University of Calgary where you can go and get trained on aspects and get a certificate. It essentially lets you kind of look at the scan. And as you said, it's very biased against, uh, sorry, for the MCA territories. Mm -hmm. But there is even something called a P aspects, like a posterior circulation. But we, uh, a perfect brain is an aspects of 10. And, uh, I hope yeah. I have an aspects of 10. You probably have an aspects of 10. <laughs> At least six. At yeah. least six, yeah. It's all abstract. Anyway. <laughs> That's right. So what does it really mean? What exactly. does six even mean? That's right, exactly. Um, and yeah, imaging on the console. You know, it's a bit of a caveat sometimes that, you know, waiting for that CTA, like uh, I've definitely had a case where, you know, you got to wait and for whatever reason, that pause allowed me to see that there's actually a dissection. So exactly. once in a while, waiting for that CTA matters, but in general, yeah, you don't, you don't need to. And what do you guys think about a patient with chronic kidney disease and a high creatinine and, uh, you know, mm. what do you do about that? Do you do the CTA? Maybe you do a stepwise stepwise decision making at that point. You know, if you do a plain CT, you see a large What if the NIH is like 28 and they look terrible and having a massive stroke? Would you do a CTA? Would you do a CTA? What is the risk of AKI? It's probably pretty low. Yeah, it's very low. Yeah. It's under 1%. Probably good to go ahead with it. Yeah. Brain before kidneys. Yep. Honestly, if they're having a Neurons massive over stroke, um, then you can call your nephrology colleagues and if they need to be dialyzed, if they have CKD and you've kind of pushed them over the edge with a contrast bolus, then, uh, yeah. but you need this to make your decision and potentially take them for a thrombectomy. Sorry to any of our nephrology colleagues listening right. to this podcast. That's right. I think there's probably like three kinds of people, right? There's the ones that you're, you're if you hydrate them thereafter, uh, that they're probably not going to get any acute, you know, any acute contrast-induced nephropathy, um, and it's been shown in probably in stroke patients that you know it's more of a hospital-induced nephropathy because they're sick and they have a stroke and they're in hospital. Sometimes they're not in a stroke unit; uh, they're not getting that medical care that they need pre and post. But in general, most folks can tolerate it. Those that have some CKD may get a bump in creatinine, but it'll resolve in a few days, and a very, very small proportion may end up on dialysis. Again, important to tell the family. Sometimes I do consent them and get it on paper. Mm. But in general, mm -hmm. I think when you know, you're suspecting a high degree with a high degree or, or, or the patient is bad enough physically uh, to, to deserve TPA or consideration thereof, just give, just give the other juice, which is the contrast, so you can give the other, other juice. Does that make sense? Juice give one before juice, juice number two. Juice one before juice two. It probably makes sense. Sequential juicing. <laughs> yeah. Sequential juicing. That's right. That's a, so that's very good. So, you know, so that's pretty much it. Like, these are the, we, we kind of like summarized it. Do you, do, you guys, do you guys want to kind of set us into the sunset, uh, going through some of these themes again? So sure thing. Very yeah. quickly, yeah. And then I, I think to end, you know, we should also talk about collaborative component of uh, code strokes. And yes, we're going to do a whole how important episode that on is. that. Yeah. yeah. Collaboration is good, you mean? Talk to people. Yeah, of course. Uh, what I'm saying There's is no like, I in team. That's right. That's exactly. right. You when in doubt, see the patient, yeah. talk to other people. Exactly. So, as a, should we summarize or? Summarize. Okay. Summarizer in chief. All right. Yes. Code stroke. Pager goes off. You're rushing down. Elevator thoughts. Are they stable? Number one. 
get into the recess bay, check those vitals, split your team up, assign roles and make it clear who's the code leader, who's the supportive MD, get the code leader to get started on the exam while uh, IVs are being put in place, blood work's being drawn and you're having a look um, at your MD who's doing the history to find out about any contraindications, obviously the last seen well, are they on an anticoagulant, um, those key things getting a weight, going through your stroke checklist um, and uh, rushing over to the CT scanner for imaging. And as soon as you have your plain CT, hopefully being able to make a decision about TPA go or no go, maybe repeat the blood pressure quickly before, make sure that you don't need to give a little labetalol before giving the juice and then uh, pr proceeding with your more advanced imaging with the CTA and the CT perfusion and uh, thinking about thrombectomy uh, and going from there. That's, that's awesome. So thanks very much, guys. That was a great Thank episode. You. And we look forward to having uh, our audience join us again for another episode with our awesome, my colleague, co-host together. Uh, thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for Thank having you. us. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Next time. That's a wrap. <laughs>